you have to, in the process of saying no to what you, what you don't want, continually becoming a more evolved, aligned version of yourself mm -hmm. to be able to justify it. Because mm -hmm. there's a lot of guys today that they do what Andrew Tate does in regards wow. to setting these parameters for what they want in a relationship, what they will won't tolerate, but they're not shit. They're, but they're doing fucking nothing, dude. But yeah, exactly. They're what not the fuck shit. are you bringing to the table to establish these Andrew boundaries? Tate can do that. Andrew Tate can do that because yes. of what he's been able to accomplish. Yes. Okay? Yeah. You're not entitled to that as a man. What is happening? Welcome back to your favorite podcast, the Grodi Podcast. I'm with Justin Mahaley, and today I'm joined by Kian Lagi. What a show. Wow. We are going to talk about driving towards your purpose. Receivership. It's a typically feminine trait that Kian and I believe more men must embrace to be able to get to their next level the receiving mentorship, receiving coaching, taking advice from people who have done it before. Kian has all but coined the phrase emotional autonomy, and we dive deep into that. And for the absolutely nobody who is interested, I share exactly what it would take for a woman to get my unadulterated interest in her. So make sure to stick around for all of the show, except that one, because let's be honest, nobody actually wants these problems. <laughs> Get ready. I'll see you inside. Kian Loggy, the emotionless man is, is scared at its core. The emotional man is strong at its core. Yet you're turning 30 this month. Uh, I turned 30 back in May this year. Our entire life was spent essentially being told that we're not really allowed to be super emotional and we're not allowed to wear that hard on our sleeves and um, anger is okay and not having outlets is okay and just lay it on the field and all of that. The current age man is struggling badly, man. I mean, Kia, they are struggling, my guy. What is going on with masculinity in 2024 by the time this podcast drops that you think we can change throughout the next two hours together? Well, they could use some of what we were forced to do, right? What, what we had during that time was a blessing for us because it established a solid foundation of masculine drive and consistency and sticking to something that we know we really wanted. But unfortunately, the way the world's going, they could use a heavy dose of that while as us as men that are naturally, I would say for myself, speak for myself, I was naturally inclined to really drive toward what I wanted. I would say football was more of an outlet for me to be able to do that. But the world needs to be able to establish that level of operating, that level of focus, that level of consistency, while as men like us, which is the men that I work with, are the men that need to adopt the other end of the spectrum, which is how to healthfully step into emotional expression separate from being who we feel like we have to be to get what we want. I feel like there's a strong correlation between the purpose of someone's life, not just specifically men, but the purpose of a male or a female's life and their ability to be highly emotionally vulnerable. Because without having the emotional vulnerability, you're not going to be able to curate these really deep connections with people. And are you even quite able to forge a deep connection within yourself until you have that emotional vulnerability? 
No, it's it's kind of like what, what came first, the chicken or the egg. It's hard to even express if you don't know who you are. And if you don't know who you are, you can't really express. So it's very difficult to be able to do. But also, I think a big part of it is, is understanding the practical element of the power of vulnerability in regard to the fruits that it can bear. So oftentimes, it's not necessarily that people can't do it. I just think they don't understand the actual benefit, the practical benefit associated with being able to step into that. I think if more men understood the practical benefits associated with the action of vulnerability or the expression of what's truly happening inside of us, then naturally men would do it more. Mm -hmm. But I think the people that are telling men, which are women and very feminine men, to do these things, masculine men, I mean, someone like you who's got the fucking beard, Jack, is pursuing his purpose. Mm -hmm. He's not going to listen to some hippie saying, dude, you need to express your your emotions. Like, it doesn't work like that. So yeah. more men like us need to be speaking out on this. Men that do come from more of the hard-nosed gladiator type of operating in a way that we can share with other men the practical understanding behind justifying speaking into vulnerability more. Yeah, the message really is in the medium. Um, it's like that anywhere in life. If you're going to listen to me tell you how to win a Super Bowl versus Bill Belichick, how to win a Super Bowl, you're going to likely be inclined to listen to Bill Belichick on how to win a Super Bowl. Yet when the Grower Die podcast went through a transition this year, which has just been amazing to see, and I allowed myself to become as vulnerable with the show as I am in my interpersonal relationships, the feedback key, and it's, it's been amazing because you're right. The people that you see on social media continually talking about emotional vulnerability and all of those things, yeah, they're typically real skinny, hippie dudes that probably like aren't getting the girls that you actually want to get and probably don't have the driving purpose that you want to have. And that's kind of been their only outlet. Whereas, as you alluded to, man, we come from an intense sports background. You played in the NFL. I was fortunate enough to um, have a division one experience where, yeah, some people might not like this analogy, but it's gladiatorship in there. It's brutal. It's every single day. It's not just somebody's like coming for your spot. They'll do anything that they possibly can to get that spot on the relay team, to get on the practice squad, to get on the active roster, to surpass you. Because if they supplant you, then they're ingraining their self. But one day, it all just came to an end for you. And you tore your ACL. This was shortly after the Chiefs told you that you're on the team. 2016. Talk about yeah. that. Yeah. So I got, I had a trial with Kansas City. They had too many linebackers on the roster. So as you reverted to earlier about the element of the cutthroatness of the industry, sometimes just because there's not a position open, doesn't matter how good you do. Didn't matter how well I did. They didn't have space for me. So they told my agent that if they had an injury. I'd be the first person they called. And so we trusted that that would be the case. But just to hedge against that, I went to New Orleans the following weekend to do a trial with them tore my ACL, and basically decided to rehab my knee to a point without doing surgery to where I would at least pass a physical if I got put under one. Mm -hmm. So I knew that at some point during the season, if I got a call back, I would tear my ACL completely and they'd, I'd get the best doctors in the world and get paid. But that was the mindset that I was in. I was so disregarding my own state of health that that was part of the process with just knowing I was going to blow my knee out at some point. And so I did inevitably get my shot, the third preseason game in. Kansas City called me, said they had an injury. 
And so there I was, didn't have to do any of training camp, got to rehab my knee as good as possible and was flying high. Yeah. Little did I know within 24 hours, I got flown down to Kansas City and got some precautionary MRIs done, one on my neck and one on my hamstring, which I had a previous college injury for. I found that my neck condition was a lot worse than we thought. And on that call, they said, we can't clear you. You're done. You'll never play again. And then you're just shambled. I mean, that night, for sure, I bawled my eyes out. I cried very hard. But to that was, point, was, your whole identity is, I'm a football player. Yeah, but I never, I never operated like that. Okay. So I was able to be with the tension of what I truly desire for myself at a very young age without ever fully getting lost in the identity of it. And this is why I believe my ability to pivot and transition after football was so remarkable. Mm -hmm. Now, I did experience intense emotion after I was told I'd never be able to play again. But ironically enough, there was a slight sense of relief that came with that. Being someone that relentlessly pursues what I want, there's a certain level of pressure that I do put on myself to be able to get to that point. And so that night, I went out by myself into Kansas City, had a burger and fries and a pop, and didn't think about anything that I was eating. I just yeah. did it and enjoyed the meal without thinking about how much more food I would have to eat later. Yeah, yeah. Or what I was going to have to do as far as training goes the next few hours. I always get made fun of when I say pop. Everyone makes fun of me. I'm from, I'm from South Dakota, so we speak like that. I'm from Ohio, and that's that's yeah. what we call it. It's called pop, dude. Like, I'm going home for Christmas this weekend, and thank God I'm not going to be made fun of when I say pop. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so we speak different. You you went to South Dakota State University. Is that where it was? University of South Dakota. University of South Dakota, and you were you had a lot of accolades. I mean, you were you were the man. You were the man around that part. Like hey, the, well, the one that I take, one that I actually take the most pride in is actually being part of the all conference. It was the the all state good hands team. Mm -hmm. And so the people that were the most active in the community got part of this team. So that was something I took a lot of pride in. And actually, believe it or not, my number one goal with getting to the NFL wasn't to win a Super Bowl, but it was to become a Walter Payton man of the year. Mm -hmm. So I want to add that that I think that was the most rewarding for me being able to get that award. I am going to briefly interrupt this podcast to ask you to leave a five-star review and rating on whatever platform you're listening. And if you do this and screenshot and send it to the Grower.Die Instagram page, you are going to be entered to win a $100 Amazon gift card. We're going to be picking people every other week. And listen, the show gets like 10, maybe 15 reviews per week. So your odds are going to be pretty high in there. So if you do that for me, it would be an amazing help. Let's get back to the show. So you go from South Dakota to NFL tryout. It's very easy to say you were the underdog. You had to have embraced that role. You had to have loved that role. And something I admire about your work when I was reviewing it before this show is you work with some high performers, some big time people, yet you also like taking in that underdog. Why do you like working with the underdog? Chat with me. To teach the underdog how to not be an underdog. And I think there's a different operating system that comes with scrapping your way into becoming something and then becoming that thing and learning how to create longevity within that thing that you're doing. Mm -hmm. And so something very fun for me is taking someone that does scrap to get to a certain point 
but then be able to shift that mental operating system to one of someone that is I am. So yeah. there's the becoming, and then, then there's the I am that ultimately gets you to that higher and higher state. And that pivot point can be a very difficult transition. And I think that's where like CEOs, they build their company up to a point where they're incredibly successful, but they're at a point where they need to start to pivot to where they're not lost in the business. They're more controlling it from the outside in. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm talking about. And it's like same thing with getting to the NFL. It's less about scrapping to get there, being a white kid from South Dakota with the probability of getting there, being slim to none, not being 6'9 or running a 4'440, mm-hmm. being able to switch my operating system if I would have made it to not one of, I have to scrap my way into becoming what I need to, but settling into I am. And now how do I preserve myself in a way to be able to consistently stay here mm-hmm. and thrive even greater? Yeah, I love some notes that you made there. You also brought up the 4440. So you have an NFL background, me having a track background, Kian. You know exactly. You ran what a I'm four about. four? Hell no. Hell no, oh, I didn't run a four four. You know why? <laughs> Let's go. You know why? <laughs> because no one's running a four four. And it's the most overused expression. People are out, they'll have a couple of drinks, they'll come up, they'll be talking, man, like you're huge. Like, you should play football. And I was like, nah, dude, like I actually ran track like a hundred pounds ago, you know, yada yada. You get into the whole thing. Oh, you know, like I played football, I was running back. I ran a four four. You didn't run a fucking four four. You never ran a 4-4 in your life. You don't even know what that looks like. A 4-6 is really fast, but you just hear 4-4 all, like, what's Patrick Mahomes run, like a 4-8? Like, you ain't beating Patrick Mahomes in a foot race. You're just not beating that guy, let alone a 4-4. I get, it's like the it's like the old dude at the gym that comes up and says, like, oh, I used to look like you. Like, no, you never fucking, you never looked like me. That, it didn't happen. Yeah. Um See, yeah, but you know what? I take I take a yeah. lot of pride in. It. I take a lot of. Pride. I actually I ran a four five six official. Dude, you were cooking. Was, I was two thirty five. Hey, but I think I take a lot of pride in. Yeah, I had a ten seven broad and a thirty nine inch vert. That ten seven broad like, is nasty, bro. But I, I had some free coaching, man. I had some guys that were just geniuses. Now I had the raw material, but yeah. man, I had some incredibly technical people that. I had helped facilitate the process of me getting there. So if you want to be really great at something, if you want to really stand out of something, you better have a coach. You better have somebody who would get everything and everything. And this is, I, I, I attribute a lot of my success to a certain feminine element of myself, which is receivership. Yeah. Right. It's the ability to be able to receive, which a lot of very rigid masculine men do not have the capacity to do, Mm -hmm. which is why they, struggle for so much longer to get what they want, yeah. which is what I help in- integrate within a lot of men. It's more of a feminine essence, more of the receivership and trusting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was so fucking feminine in the film room, man. I would ask so many questions. I'd try to get so many details hammered out about what I could do differently and how to be able to do it differently. I was the smallest ego in the world when it came to learning from people that knew more than me. And I really attribute a lot of my success to picking the minds incessantly of the people that I had as resources in my life. Once you realize and identify there's an issue or a problem, something that you're just not making the progression that you would like to be making, the best thing that you can become is egoless in nature and allow someone to take the reins. I have, well, hey, but uh, let me, let me catch you. Go ahead. Is that real quick? Go you ahead. say egoless nature. And I, and I refer to that a little bit too. But if we really think about it and sink into it, it's like, well, if the thing that's going to naturally benefit me the most is being able to be incredibly receptive to people that know something about what I want to attain, then wouldn't it actually be very egoful 
thinking about the self mm. and the self receiving at the highest level to go get that help. So I think if we reframe it and we say, well, actually not getting that help would be the antithesis to putting your ego first. Wow. It's really yeah. just an underlying sense of pride that you don't fully have the knowledge to wrap your mind around the fact that it's not serving you. So if I'm really operating in my highest ego as serving me, then it would be naturally to do that. But that's where I say, I think the biggest issue that people have most of the time is an absence of knowledge. And so people can have that deep sense of knowledge that can help them be able to understand that what is serving themselves is operating in their ego, which is Mm -hmm. doing what really serves their ego at the highest level, which is asking for greater understanding. I like that reframe. I I, I want to sit more with that later on in my in my post uh, podcast journal session because that's really nice. I I, I like that reframe. I, I think then then what's holding people back? What holds people back from reaching out to get that leadership and that guidance? I I know what held me back. I want to know what you think. I think people are just stuck in their programming, and inherently, it's an uncomfortable thing to expand beyond where our mind exists. I think some people have a greater capacity than others to be able to expand, like push the tension or threshold of stepping into something new. Mm -hmm. But I think the first most important thing in being able to move beyond this primitive operating system that our brains function under Mm -hmm. is being able to understand that it's a natural thing for our minds to not want to move beyond where we are. Mm -hmm. It's a natural thing. And I think the the spiritual community does a great job. And even the, the psychiatrists and therapy-based community does a great job of trying to label this as being, whether it's self-sabotage or I have these immense fears and all this shit. All of that is really just mechanisms the brain uses to not have to change. And that's mm-hmm. what it all boils down to is the natural mechanism that the brain uses to not have to change. So if we can shift our perspective associated with it and understand it's a natural resistance that our brains have to changing, then we can begin to be able to move past it. But if we're trying to battle against it and try to get rid of it, before we can alchemize it, which I could talk more about that, it's not going to serve anybody. So I think it'll take a little bit of tension off of people knowing that it's not like it's some crazy thing that only exists with you. It's a natural reaction to our brains to try to preserve themselves so they don't have to be uncomfortable. It's natural. People love confirmation bias and being complacent. People love the conformity. People love groupthink because Well, I mean, quite frank, you don't really get a lot of heat when you're not doing anything super special. Do you think people have a fear of, I I, I have a vision of this desired outcome, yet if I reach this desired outcome, all of these things that are currently present in my life are all going to change. So maybe I'm not scared of the desired outcome. I'm scared that my best friend might not be my best friend, that my partner might not be my partner. I'm going to have to move to a bigger and greater city. I'm going to have to upset my family with some of the things that I do, so on and so forth, more responsibilities and whatnot. People are scared of what they lose on the path to success more than I think they're scared of success. Yes. And whether that's subconscious or conscious, it just is a testament to what I just said. Yeah. Naturally, they're going to have to change and the human brain wants to preserve itself. Yeah. So that's a very natural thing that's happening within them that we don't have to add a layer of personalness to those feelings associated with not wanting to change. We don't have to make it personal. We can just say that is a natural thing that happens. And then the process of being able to move beyond it 
is a whole different thing. But I think we can make it more hairy and add more problems into the equation than is maybe necessary when we try to break it down into each individual thing that people are uh, afraid of, which is really the brain just trying to preserve itself. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Then we can make it a little lighter. I, I can feel it when I'm saying it, just the lightness associated with allowing people the permission to feel the naturalness of those fears that come with shifting into the person they need to become to get what it is that they want. And speaking of shifting into the person you want to become to get what you want, I, I, I want to loop back around to the underdog role that I know you enjoy, you being from South Dakota. I'm, I'm a dude from small town Ohio. The underdog role is something I've always embraced. And in and, and, and my realm of work, Kian, we, as a bodybuilding and, and fitness coach mainly, you don't get the shot at the freak of nature until you've really turned over a lot of average people and made them look great. So you kind of make your bread and butter off of the underdogs who come and hit you up and giving them your best and allowing them to see that process through. When I liken this to economic status, um, there's an adage about, well, if you grow up a, a little poor there's going to be some tools and resources and skills of survival that you're going to have to develop to be able to keep ahead, to, to kind of claw your way out of that. And if you can keep or develop a open or growth mindset or whatever you would like to refer to it as, while you're a attaining these attributes to get you out of scarcity, out of poverty, out of whatever – as you build and claw and grow, you're going to have some attributes if you work your way into a realm of wealth that people who might be born into wealth are just simply not going to have. If you've never felt what scarcity is and you were just born into a family, I mean, I mean your starting position as it pertains to socioeconomics is where your parents are. Like you're, wherever you're born into, that's your starting position. And some people certainly are, you know, put into situations that are much elevated compared to what you and I would have experienced in South Dakota and Ohio. Yet there's some attributes that we got to learn that we have that they will never, ever be able to attain because their entire life has been in abundance. All that to be said, I feel like the underdog role is nearly easier to work with than the person who has always had abundance, who has always been the one that things came to a little bit easier. And not that I have anything against those people. I mean, to be honest, man, those those are fun as hell to work with because some things just happen real fast for them. Do you think there's something to be said about the tools and the, the mindset of these groups of people that had a much harsher surrounding environment and upbringing as opposed to the people who seem to always be ahead. And what do you think some of those mindset differences are? Yeah. So the first thing I want to do is I don't want to glorify the underdogs. I think it can be very easy to do. And I actually believe that is the Achilles heel to a lot of people that do come from socioeconomic backgrounds that aren't very fruitful. Yeah, I'll take me for example. Mentality. Uh, to some extent, they're just a different mentality that comes with not being a loser compared to being a winner. Yep. They're, they're, they're ah, different yep. mentalities. 
And I think a lot of underdogs can get really good at learning how to not be a loser. But when it comes down to receiving the fruits associated with the labor that they put in, they don't know how to win. They know how to grow the apple tree, but they don't know how to pick the fruit and sit right next to the apple tree and mm -hmm. eat it, mm -hmm. which is a whole different game. Mm -hmm. How do you learn to win? Hmm. Well, I think you first have to position yourself to do that. And that's through using the attributes that come with being the underdog to really create a foundation for yourself that allows you to actually win, which many men today don't even have the capacity to do that. So first, men have to be able to do that. Learning how to win is a wildly difficult task because, as you alluded to, you can grow the apple tree. Um, that's the the easier part is doing the execution and tangibles to get the job done for I underdog mean, people. For 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 underdog people, um, yeah, when you were born into winning, it's all you've ever seen. You, you, it's you, an expectation. You don't know how to do anything else. I mean, you look at you look at huge colleges like um, like Georgia missed the playoffs this year, and like twenty people are transferring out because I mean, Lord knows what's going on. But like, the expectation is one thing and one thing only. You're the fifth ranked team in the country, and you can't even hold on to the people that you got because that one thing was not accomplished. So nobody's good enough. That's that's a a wildly different dynamic than the underdog who is six and six and gets some transfers in. Maybe what Colorado is doing with 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 Prime out there, um, who gets in these transfers. Now you got to learn to establish a culture that wins, and the culture that wins is one that all of the tiny little nitpicky things are going to be nailed. I was listening to a show with Jeff Bezos on. Uh, unbelievable podcast guest. Who would have thought Jeff Bezos was like an unreal podcast guest? And he's talking about how the macro is, of course, easy to define. It's easy to look at, like the Amazon one day shipping, Amazon being beating people's prices, the customer service, so on and so forth. The tiny little micro things that Amazon out executes everybody on. The tiny little customer service details, how easy it is to understand a product, how easy it is to return a product, all these little micro cuts, he calls them paper cuts that just happen over time. Those little paper cuts have to be perfected, optimized in order for there to be a winning structure in place. So you can have the perfect play calls. You can have the perfect coach. You can have the perfect setup. You can have the perfect everything. Then you launch your business or you launch onto you know, whatever pursuit you're on, you're undergoing. But if your brain doesn't expect to win, if it doesn't grasp the concept of what a win takes, if it doesn't understand the sacrifice, if it doesn't understand how to pivot, if it doesn't understand the exact metrics that it's seeing in real time, how to discern data from anecdote, if the anecdote's working and the data's not working, then we have to ride with the anecdote because it's clearly working. Winning is an entire conceptualization that is deeply integrated in someone's brain. The hard part is, Kian, man, men and women, they don't believe that they can win because they're just watching everybody else do it all the time. I think some of this is the TikTokification of the world, but they just don't have it. They don't believe it, but there's the intangibles. They've got the things, 
but they can't put it together. And it seems like that's where you come in to help these people put those things together to build a winning life and to cultivate W's coming in. What's that process look like? Yeah, absolutely. And I coined this term. I've never heard anybody else say this before, but it's called emotional autonomy. Hmm. Emotional autonomy. Mm -hmm. And that's the capacity to be able to operate in a way where you're not allowing the outside world, whether that's society, family, friends, your girlfriend, boyfriend, whoever is an influential figure in your life to impact the way that you're operating. And now more than ever, we have the capacity to be connected to thousands of millions of people at the touch of our fingertips, mm -hmm. which makes it even more difficult for people to be emotionally autonomous. Mm -hmm. So the first step in being able to move forward in a powerful direct way is to be able to separate self from the collective and to get really fucking clear about who I am and what it is that I want. But it's very difficult to do that while I'm connected, so intimately connected with everybody else. So one of the first things that people have to do is they have to disconnect from the collective. Now I know it's very hard because we're inherently all connected based on the cloud that we're all the cloud, the metaphorical cloud mm -hmm. that we're all connected to. Mm -hmm. But really, I think the journey for most people is being able to first sever the tie or the bondage to the collective, which naturally exists within us. You go back thousands of thousands of years. Of course, we have to have that to be able to survive in the wilderness. We have to be able to maintain a frame of connectedness to the tribe that we have around us. So once again, acknowledging the naturalness of that. But then once that is attained, once the emotional autonomy is attained, then it's about being able to build and grow the energetic power that exists within us through being connected to God. So you can either be connected to God or you can be connected to the collective. Mm -hmm. And so once you're disconnected from the collective and you're now connected to God, that's where the fun begins. That's where your own field starts to form. And that's where when you're so convicted in what you know to be true based on your connection with God, other people around you naturally start to become part of your cloud. They become part of my cloud. So I'm no longer operating this way where I'm part of the collective cloud, but now people are coming and existing within my cloud, which I trust much more than the collective cloud that exists amongst everybody. Yeah, the collective cloud that has a bunch of, I mean, what's the average person in America, divorced, fat, and under $1,000 in their bank account? I don't want to be part of that group. I'm not interested no. in being there. <laughs> um, Absolutely I, not, but it's easiest. It, oh my God. It's, it's most convenient, it's, which is also natural for humans. Do what's mm -hmm. most natural and convenient tribalism it's tribalism we're the most tribal beings that, that that there are we need to be validated and accepted and i want to get into that but i have a caveat for you what if somebody comes to you and they don't really worship or believe in god they're spiritually aligned and connected but they don't have a connection to something they would refer to as a God. Would that interplay still kind of stay the same? Like whatever your higher self, your, your. It's foolish. Yeah. It's absolutely foolish. And I think that's an absence of understanding and an absence of knowledge. Yeah. I myself have, I grew up in a, a non-denominational Protestant Christian background. Mm -hmm. I was teaching Sunday school in high school and I decided to leave the church. Now, without going too deep into that, I went into almost uh, as an experiment, went to a place where I said, there is no God. I wanted to go to that place. So mm -hmm. whenever I would feel the need to go to prayer or to talk to God, I would stop and I would sit with whatever I was experiencing mm -hmm. to allow myself to experience it without having to 
remove myself from it, which actually was very powerful. And it's a very powerful exercise for people to do mm -hmm. where we can process through emotion rather than immediately giving it up. Mm -hmm. We can sit with it and through the tension of sitting with it allows for clarity, which is the general process I take people through in the context of my calls, but that's the, the talk for another day. Mm -hmm. But the fact is, is that I gave myself the permission to go to a place of no God. I said, there's no God and went there. And to be honest with you, maybe other people have different experiences, but my experience was very bleak. It was like, well, if it's just me and nothing matters, which very well could be true. I'm not saying it's not true because I don't really know. But I went to that place and I found that this doesn't feel very good. Mm -hmm. And so naturally, if I want to feel better and I want to feel powerful, then maybe it would make sense for me to make the choice to have a relationship with God. Mm -hmm. And so instead of coming from a place of neediness and necessity, I came from a place of, well, this actually is what much is much better at serving me. And so I made that choice to be able to have a relationship with God, not one of connectedness to any certain affiliation with the religion, mm -hmm. but in regards to just a personal relationship that I have with God, where I pray at dinner, I connect with him or whatever you want to say him or her. Mm -hmm on a consistent basis. And now I believe I can, I'm very, very connected and naturally a stream of God given inspiration just flows through me. And to be honest with you, I think a lot of humility that I have, which people may not see based on how I'm speaking, but I really do have at a deep level comes from my knowing that I fall short of the inspirations that God plants on my heart. Mm -hmm. So I'm very open to receiving all the inspirations and I consistently see where my humanness gets into play where my natural programming gets into play of not being able to follow through with that God-given inspiration. So I naturally, as I would take most people through the process of, I take my time. I take micro-inspirations and I move towards the macro-inspirations in a way where I feel good about it, where I don't have to rush to get there because I know eventually I will. Mm -hmm. And I trust that in this beautiful divine timing that God has for me, I will have everything that I am inherently designed to be able to have. I went through a long phase as well, Kian, of it's just me and nothing matters. And that is a, that's not a, that's not a good place to be. Um, at the time, I thought it was great. Not dissimilar from you. I grew up in a church. I remember being there and I was like, this, this doesn't suit me. This something about this feels super weird. I saw, um, you know, what went down behind the scenes of, certain households that were extremely deeply ingrained in the church. I deciphered at a young age, I do not want to do it, have anything to do with that. So I would say the, the realm of God or spirituality was far outside of my um, life for a better part of 14, 15 years. Uh, 29, I started, so just in the last about a year and a half, as I became more and more emotionally adept and vulnerable and, and self-aware and aware of surrounding and learning how to temper my ego, I can turn it up if it needs to be. I can turn it down if it needs to be. On these down throttles, I would just have this sense of something. And they're kind of over time without the use of psychedelics or anything like that, which I know a lot of people enjoy finding their spirituality through, which is that's your thing. That's your I, I support whatever makes somebody happy, to be honest with you, as long as you're not harming other people. There was just this kind of thought of, 
I'm not really, I'm not here by myself. Things do matter. The things that I'm doing are leading towards a path. There's an energy. There's a, you said that the inspiration of God kind of flows through you. I, 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 I'm not, I'm not quite there with an, an overarching God. I, I, I certainly feel this intense spirituality alignment that I have, and I, I don't have the answers. I, I, I don't have any. I, all I know is my human experience, and I think we can all have vastly different human experiences that cultivate in some sort of relationship with something. And you know what, Kian? I'm not close-minded to think maybe some people don't have that. Maybe there are humans that don't have that driving force, that higher self, the something above them, because I don't know. I only know my experience. Yet, it's been fascinating what is cultivated in my life since I find an alignment with that thing, whatever this thing is. Maybe it is God. I have no idea. The purpose that I have and I operate with and the accountability that I have internally and the way that I take pride in my thoughts and I, I monitor and my my spiritual diet, my emotional diet, my mental diet is it's definitely been a different. It's been an interesting correlation as it comes to that. But I don't want to get into a whole religious talk. I, I try not to. You know what's funny? The acronym is Grow or Die. This is God, so I call it the God Pod. Uh, but I don't talk about religion a ton on here. What I do want to talk about is the emotional autonomy and the validation from social media. And people seem to be living in this state of who I am is who these people want me to be or who I need to portray to be able to fit into this tribe up in the cloud, as you uh, um, allude to. But that's not actually who they are. So they break free from the social constraints of whatever's going on online. They stop comparing themselves to everybody. And they realize Man, a lot of that validation is coming external. How can we, how can we flip that around? What strategies have you found helpful in building a more internal sense of of validation, if you will? And actually, before you go back, you have a quote that I wrote down here that I, I really enjoy a lot because you went through something similar. You said, "I would base how I felt about myself off of how many other people feel, no matter how many friends I had, how much family support I received, how much success I was having." Or how many people I helped feel good, I never felt like it was enough. Like I was enough, and Kian, you are speaking for many men when you say that. So how do you find some internal validation? Well, I think the first step in being able to go from using the external to justify to the internal is being able to acknowledge the die-off that will have to happen in the process of shifting operating systems. And so we can reference a, a Bible term here, bearing the cross, dying, and being resurrected. I say this to my clients all the time. You have to be willing to do that over and over and over and over and over again. You have to be willing to die in this space over and over again. I say that as a prerequisite before they get into the container with me, because you have to. You have to be willing to die and to experience the pain associated with death. And with any operating system comes the feeling of death, which does not feel good. And so for me, I came from a place of always saying hi to everybody on my college campus. Everybody knew me. I would say hi to everybody. My friends probably got very annoyed. My close intimate friends probably got very annoyed mm -hmm. because I would just stop and say hi and talk to everyone. And even throughout my beginning of my adult life, I would stop and say hi to everybody. I would smile at everyone that 
I would walk by on the sidewalk or in a store. And one day I was like, what if I just stop doing this? Like, what, why do I do this so much? And how much of my energy is being released by prostituting it all the time? I'm like, I'm just going to stop. Yeah. This. And as an addict, I literally notice myself go to be like, yeah. You guys, I'm going to interrupt the show really quickly to tell you about the Grow or Die Facebook group that is jam-packed with knowledge. Not only am I going to be having guests from the Grow or Die page come in there and talk exclusively to you guys, we are going to share tons of information about sex, about relationships, about mentality, about wealth, about health that we are going to continually be building upon. And it is a literal one-stop shop for continual self-improvement in the areas of your life and bedroom, your wallet, and the way that you see yourself and see the world. So please join the free Grow or Die Facebook group a ridiculous amount of value in there. Let's get back to the show. And I would intentionally stop myself doing that. And now someone might hear that might be like, that's fucking weird. Why would you stop yourself from saying hi to somebody or smiling at somebody? Well, it's because it was an experiment that I had to be able to understand myself deeper in a way where I'm stopping doing something I've always done so I can see what happens as a byproduct. And what I found was as I stopped being the person that always reached out to people first, and stop being the one that would say hi to everybody first. I noticed who was still around. Mm. I noticed the people that decided to stick around and fill in the gap that I left. And so that, that revealed the people that actually were closest to me during that time. So I got really clear about the people that were really in it for me, not just in it for the person that I was or the things that I had or the attention that I gave them. Okay. So that was a very important part of the process. When you kind of take a step back and realize that you're the power plant facilitating energy out to a lot of things, but there's nothing bringing it back in. Yeah, that's kind of a heartbreaking place to be, huh? That was um, that was a 26-year-old Justin thing was, oh, wait. Oh, my God. Like, it was like the blinds were pulled up and I got to see clear as day who I was supplying that was only draining. And those people, I call those people anchors. Those those people aren't the ones that are going to help you live out whatever your grandiose vision of your desired outcome is. They're going to hold you back from that. Yet it's difficult, Kian. People are in relationships where they're the power plant and there ain't nothing coming back. I'm, I'm assuming you probably, I mean, you're a 30-year-old dude, probably had a pretty decent dating history. I'm assuming that you've got some experience in that realm. And yeah, my advice is always very, very liberal. I'm like, your partner's not serving you. You go home right now. You break up with them. You leave. You start a new life. But that's not really applicable to everybody. I think I just operated in a bit of a different space there. How how would you handle situations like that? When I got really clear that it wasn't what I really wanted, mm-hmm. separate from the gratification I found in being able to give them what they really wanted, I would definitely go and cut it off. It's like it's like trying to stop being a crackhead, continually living in a crack house. I use that example all the time. <laughs> I like it's like, that. well, if you want to stop being a crackhead, let's get out of the crack house and then once you find that you're able to not be addicted to crack anymore, 
if you'd like to make an appearance back in the crack house, well, you can, but you're probably going to realize that you don't want to. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. removing yourself from the crack house as you're beginning the process of breaking the addiction to being the savior for the people around you, mm -hmm. it can be very beneficial. Now, I think what keeps people generally in that consistent pattern of doing that over and over again and consistently with the new relationships that they have, it's not really being able to be honest about the truth about what they want. What do I really want and what am I not willing to tolerate? Having a level of boundaries with the person or people that you have intimately in your life. And I think the person or the woman that I decide to have in my life should meet a very specific criteria based on the person that I am. Mm. So if I'm compromising on what I know I want because I'm more addicted to the feeling that I get from knowing I'm giving them what they want, then I can't ever get what I want. Naturally, God will not deliver me what I'm willing to tolerate or if I'm prioritizing the feeling associated with helping someone else compared to me getting what I really want. Mm -hmm. So I have to make the decision to stop prioritizing the feeling associated with helping other people in my intimate relationship. Now people pay me to do that. <laughs> yeah, like that's, paid a lot that's of money way more fun. <laughs> which, which is great. It's, it's amazing. Yep. It's not the place for my intimate relationship. Okay? Mm. And so by allowing myself to be honest with myself about the basic criteria that I will not tolerate with getting into a relationship, that can allow me to be able to allow the soft key. And Because I'm soft as shit. I'm actually very soft. Mm -hmm. a super soft heart, man. He can play freely without having to worry about making sure he's accountable for this other person, making sure they're having fun because they already know how to have fun. Mm -hmm. It's managing the selfless versus selfish. Maybe um, I talk about the your. It's earned that that that's, mm -hmm. that selflessness in a relationship is earned over time for a woman. It's not something that should be given immediately. It should be earned. Chat about for you maybe some of your clients you've helped, what does earning that look like? I know I, uh, you know, I, I have some of my things. I think if someone, I love someone that supports me, I'm doing a lot of shit. I make a lot of things happen. Uh, I'm a fucking animal with my work output. Podcast blows up. Team Haley's blowing up. We got some things popping off support the hell out of it. Like number two, and alongside that, I don't have capacity for low hanging fruit things right now. So yes, you know, I, I, I didn't text you all day. You're right. You're right. I didn't have time to FaceTime yesterday. You're right. You're right. I, there can't be nags. There can't be aches and pains and little things like that. And that's just, you know, my personal, my personal desires. You've got to be looking out and growing yourself. You've got to be making moves yourself to bring something to the table so that I'm continually being pushed by the person closest to me to reach new heights and new levels. You don't got to be making the same money as me. You don't have to be a business owner like me. You don't have to have a pot. You don't have to have nothing. You just got to be working real hard to improve yourself. Those are some, like, those are bare minimum items. Um, well, unbelievably amazing sex is going to help a lot too. But those are like some bare minimum items for me that it's like, okay, I'll break down the barrier. I'll allow there to be some selflessness what about it for you? 
What are you seeing for you, for the people you work with? What breaks down that barrier where the selflessness is earned? Most of the work, I believe, is on the front end about really being able to know what it is that you want, not just from the external, but also from the internal as far as the type of person that they are, the way they move about life, how their family dynamic works, and getting really clear about that. And I think that's most of the work is really understanding the intricacies associated with the person that you want to spend the good majority of the rest of your life with. Mm -hmm. And then from there, once that's fully established and you operate in integrity with that and say no to everything that is not that, while you're also becoming the person that you need to be, that you are today, to be able to be in the position, to be able to say to a probably beautiful woman Mm -hmm. that I don't have time to talk to you, right? You have to be a man of value to some extent to be able to do that. I got some right option. Right. So, exactly. so you have to, in the process of saying no to what you, what you don't want, continually becoming a more evolved, aligned version of yourself mm-hmm. to be able to justify it. Because mm-hmm. there's a lot of guys today that they do what Andrew Tate does in regards wow. to setting these parameters for what they want in a relationship, what they will won't tolerate, but they're not shit. They're, but they're doing fucking nothing, dude. But yeah, exactly. They're what not the fuck shit. are you bringing to the table to establish these Andrew boundaries? Tate can do that. Andrew Tate can do that because yes. of what he's been able to accomplish. Yes. Okay? Yeah. You're not entitled to that as a man. Mm-hmm. We are entitled to nothing. Nothing. We as men are entitled to absolutely nothing. Yep. Yeah. And so most men do not deserve that type of loyalty from a woman mm-hmm. that she is devoted to him in his path mm-hmm. because he's not on his own. Mm-hmm. Why would she give? Her femininity mm-hmm. and the thing that's most sacred to her, her fucking soul to you mm-hmm. as someone that's a terrible leader. Yep. She shouldn't and wouldn't. I would never advise one of my female clients to ever do that. Ever. Yep. yep. So the question is, is what do women need to do to be able to be in a position to handle a very high value man such as yourself? Mm-hmm. What do they need to do? How does a woman get to a point where She's not excessively needy because all women inherently are mm-hmm. needy. They all need time. They all need attention. They all need love. Mm-hmm. But there's always levels to it. Okay? And so how does a woman get to that point to be able to handle a man such as yourself that is willing to give her the world if she's willing to be selfless in the process of supporting you achieve whatever it is that you want to achieve? How does she do that? Well, she does that by being able to have, one, a good solid group of Good, influential friends. Mm -hmm. That is very, very important for a woman to have. She does not have a good, solid core group of friends. She's going to be excessively needy in the relationship. Mm -hmm. Okay. Same thing with a family background. Like that's why it's very important to, whether it's a good or not, to have a woman that comes from a a family that she's very close with. Mm -hmm. So she has emotional support separate from you. Right. Now, also, it's important to have, as a woman, passions, things that you are excited about outside of the relationship along with being able to take care of yourself and improve yourself so you're not excessively needy on the man that will inevitably leave you if you push him too far. And when you start to take or desire to take a greater seat than his path, you will be discarded. This is how you do it as a woman. This is how you can handle a man such as Justin, such as myself. You establish these foundations around you so you don't become emotionally dependent on the relationship. That's how you do it. Have passions. Have a good core group of friends. Be super fucking close with your family. And commit to your health at the highest level. You want to do that? 
You're going to be okay. Fuck, dude. You fucking nailed that. You fucking nailed that. What if a woman's listening to this and they're like, it's not really my fault that I'm not tight with my family. That's a tough situation. It's a tough dynamic because there's certain things in life that once you get an information piece on somebody, you can piece some other things together. And like, what are you willing to overlook? What are you willing to work on? So I'm 30. You're like, we alluded to you're, you're turning 30. I'm not in position as 25 year old Justin where I wanted projects. I love the project. Let me fix you up, baby. Come over here. Let me fix you up. Like, let's go. I don't want that. <laughs> I know what comes with it. It's not that I need this fine, this, this finished product because I'm not close to a finished product yet. There's just, if you come from a super broken family and there's no path home there, they're, better be an unbelievably tight support friend group that is like your family that is akin to what a family dynamic would be it just, it's just my opinion if you disagree that's that's it's amazing but no that's the only option that you have you have to have a ironclad friend group that can do that because i'm I'm recording shows with Kian. I've got a sick ass guest on that I want to be prepped and ready for that. I want to bring some value to this fan base too. And after this, I've got to talk to my clients. I've got a huge meeting with a doctor who flew in town for me today at 2 PM. And I'm, I'm going to be out until 6 PM away from everything. If you need me, you can't possibly get a hold of me right now. So that friend group has to become the people that you rely on. I, and I, I believe that I'm speaking for a lot of men who, you know, you use the term high value. Some people like that term. Some people dislike that term. I know what that term means, so I love it. A high value man, I, I, I don't want to be your number one. I'm not sure I want to be your number two. If your number one is is your profession and number two is your friend group, then we're going to get along great or your family and then friend group. I would really like to be in that four or five spot. I would just love for passions and family and friends and your internal work to all be above wherever I am, like on that hierarchy. Am I wrong? Am I right? What do you think? Mm. I don't think you're wrong or right. I think you have a preference that you stick to and that's what you like. I personally would like the woman that I'm with to be much more devoted to me while also having that solid foundation of support, knowing that my mission is, or our mission is above all of her personal endeavors, where she's not a woman, where she's believing that our endeavors are an equal priority mm -hmm. and that my endeavor and my purpose here that she can be part of, that we could do together is the top priority. I do not want to be in a partnership with a woman where we're both riding our own waves. I do want my priority, which is to have a woman that is devoted to being a mother mm -hmm. and bearing a lot of kids because I want to have a lot of kids. <laughs> how, many, that, how many is a lot? Five plus. I don't, I, I, it, five plus. Oh, man. Okay. Hell so yeah. she has to be willing and open to put aside whatever it is she's working on in the meantime, which I think is amazing for a woman to have, but to know that she's wanting to and has a desire to not be devoted to her businesses or her path that she has. My path, my vision is what is priority number one. And she's coming and being part of my frame of existence. I don't believe this is a co-creating frame. And that's just my personal opinion. 
But I think any woman would be incredibly lucky to be part of the frame of existence that I'm operating operating under. Mm -hmm. So it would be an amazing life for a woman to choose to be part of my frame. Now, obviously, she's going to be able to help me in a lot of ways. I'm a driver. I don't see everything. I'm not as intuitively inclined or probably connected spiritually as the woman that I am with is. Mm -hmm. So she will be an intricate, very intricate part of the process of me and us getting what it is that we want. And I don't want to take away from that. The first mate is incredibly important to the captain driving the ship. Mm -hmm. Incredibly important. The captain can't drive the ship without the first mate. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I don't want that to take away value from the woman that is going to be with me at all because she is just as important to the success of the ship. I can't do it alone, mm -hmm. but she will become part of my frame because she wants to, because it fits where her heart's at. What I respect and love so much about you is you know, you are, you know exactly what you want. You put work into this. You've seen what works, what doesn't work. You've taken notes, you've taken feedback, you've collected the data and you've put work into knowing exactly what you want. That what's going to be dope for you is if you haven't already, when you meet the woman who matches this cry, you're going to know right away. You're going to know instantly that this is the one, this list of criteria is met. And dude, I respect the hell of that because I'm not there. And so salute to you and, and and props to you for that. I love it. And I'm, I'm, I'm excited to see, I'm excited to see who locks this guy down. Um, now I, she's going to fuck me up in the I, best way. <laughs> I'm excited. For you my ass. <laughs> I am excited for you for that. There's a, a few guests I've had on a few female guests. Um, unbelievably powerful, successful women, amazing, amazing women. And uh, they all had agreed with the notion of your, uh, my money's my money, your money is our money. Spe speaking, the women's money is their own money. Whatever they earn is their money, but the man's money is split between the two of them. And she ain't fucking paying for dinner. And she ain't taking her ass to lunch. And she ain't paying the bills. She's just stacking her money. What do you think about that? And that's the problem with today's society is women are taught to be selfish. Mm -hmm. And that's the most destructive thing that women can be told mm -hmm. is to be excessively selfish. Now, I'm not talking about taking care of baseline needs, mm -hmm. right? Creating a good friend group for yourself, making sure you're prioritizing your health, prioritizing your mental health, mm -hmm. prioritizing time with family, which I think those are actually very selfish things. So there is an outlet for women to be selfish. Mm -hmm. But in a relationship intimately with a man and having a family, a woman is going to have the most fulfillment in general. Now, I might get criticized for this, but I don't give a fuck. I've worked with a lot of women, a lot of women that are just like those women that come to me. So they're not like that anymore. Mm -hmm. That want to be able to submit to the leadership of a good man that has a path, has a purpose, and that they can contribute to that purpose. Women will find much more fulfillment because they don't want that smoke. Women don't want all of the responsibility associated with pursuing a path. So why the fuck do you try to act like it? Because mm -hmm. your upbringing caused you to be that way because you didn't have a father figure that had some fucking nuts mm -hmm. that could put you in your place in the best way possible to create some safety for you so you didn't have to be the way you are. That happens a lot. But also with society being able to ejaculate their load all over women with telling them they should be this or that, 
but it's disconnecting women from their bodies because women aren't inherently designed to be excessively selfish. I think I heard something the other day of somebody talking about how it was created by the patriarchy for women to have excessive bonds with their children or something to try to keep women with their children or something. That's a complete misunderstanding of biology. Stupid shit like that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I also come from a family where my mom loves being able to own her role in the context of the mission that my dad has for our family. And she is the happiest woman in a relationship that I've ever seen. I come from the luxury of having two people that I believe have fulfilled what it is to operate at the highest level in your role as a man and a woman in a relationship dynamic. And both of them love it. Mm-hmm. My mom loves being able to see my dad being the man and knowing that she's taking care of us and taking care of the home and taking care of even the fi- some of the financial stuff that my dad doesn't have time to do. Mm-hmm. Right? She loves knowing that she's contributing to the mission that my dad has and that she's a part of that they're creating for our family. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to be able to propagate. Mm-hmm. Right? So I also come from the luxury of seeing it firsthand play out. And that is part of the reason why I'm so bought in on the idea alongside all of the people that and women that I've worked with and personal experiences. I have enough data, evolutionary biology information included, to be able to support this belief system. But I don't believe that way of operating in the long run will create the most fulfillment for a woman. There's some very this is going to sound more negative in nature than it's meant. There's just some very masculine dynamics that a lot of women decide to embrace and want to behold within themselves. And again, if whatever floats your boat to do, I hope you find someone to row that boat with you. I want everyone to be happy. I think that there's a, a pathway for that to, to be achievable. The feminist movement seems to sure have created some really hyper-masculine women who really want to be in control and they want to lead and they want to have this man that submits to them and all that stuff. And I, you know, hey, to each their own, I think it's a little bit weird. I'm yeah, never Justin, Justin, be- here's the thing, dude. Here's the thing, dude. That's not even true. That's not even true. You're, they're, they're living I, a facade. They, they, they bought into this belief. And they they really want, They re- behind every blue-haired girl that's mm-hmm. running around spouting about how feminism is the way, is a girl that wants to be, how do I say this in the most tasteful way? <laughs> Put in her place yeah. by a man <laughs> that really has her best interests at heart. Yeah. Behind that girl that's talking about how her independence is everything and that she's fighting so hard for it is begging for a man to be able to create a safe frame for her to come into to be able to feel safe in because women inherently operate in a very frantic state. They're looking for danger all the time. That is a general difference between men and women. Mm -hmm. And so behind a woman that doesn't have a solid backing of masculine support is a really actually frantic, scared woman. It's interesting you say that. I, I I very much have put that together through the conversations I've had like this with so many distinguished professionals on this show. Is the common way of thinking seems to certainly be that the women who want to be the leaders and all of that are typically wearing a mask for essentially what you're alluding to. Some 
lack of security that they've ever felt within a man. And maybe you can look in there. Which is sad. Their family sad. dynamics. It is sad. But there's not a lot of men who are equipped to build out that safe space for a woman, though. and Which is also very sad. So now we have this interplay of, okay, well, women don't feel safe. Men don't know how to provide safety, but men are scared to approach women because women just demean them and you know belittle them when they do approach. And and it's self fulfilling um, prophecy on both ends. And, and so now we have this. There seems to be this invisible boundary that is unbelievably dense is happening in the interplay of sexual dynamics and and female to male relationship dynamics, but. You know, key in there. This was said to me on a podcast clip that was posted a while back. It went, it went pretty nuts. Eighty um, percent of women are having sex with the top twenty percent of men, and if that's not the truest fucking thing I've ever heard in my life, um, the top twenty percent of men are the ones that are able to cultivate that safe space, are able to communicate, are able to lead themselves, are able to lead others, are the ones who you actually want to look up to. They have desirable fatherhood traits, even if they're not ready to be fathers. They have so many things you grasp onto, admire, and want to love and cultivate something deeper with. So those are the people that you're obviously going to explore sexual relations with. Yet there's 80% of women, there's 20% of men, obviously at some point in a monogamous culture, which I think most people still are some what monogamous in nature, there's going to be a dynamic of, well, there's too many women and there's not enough men. And so that's why we see so many women dating women. Yet that's why now at this point, if you're on the bottom end of that 80%, you're on the lower tier a little bit, you're going to have to dip into the 80% of men to be able to find a suitable long-term partner. And then you're just going to own that person, run that person, you know, because you're going to be put on the pedestal. You're not really going to respect them. You're going to think about the guy that you used to hook up with who's in the 20% who got himself a 20%er as well. All right. So we have all this. What the fuck do we do? Well, the first thing I want to say is I actually think it's beautiful. Me too. I but that's because we're the top 20%. Well, yeah, that, that's very true. But I, I say it from the standpoint of, Human evolution in general. And now, if I wasn't in the position that I'm in, I don't know if I'd be saying the same thing. I'd like to think that I would be, but then again, I wouldn't be in that position if I still had the mind that I have. Mm -hmm. Right? I, I would be in this position inevitably. So, mm -hmm. But I think it's beautiful for this reason. I think it's beautiful that women are raising their standard because it's raising the standard for the children that will be born in the world. Now, we still have an issue with the least educated being the most willing to propagate and being the most willing to, to reproduce, which is a problem in and of itself that huge. hopefully we can deal with. Right, The most intelligent, successful people are having less children, which I think is stupid. I think it's stupid. They should be having many. Elon, uh, Elon's trying to fix it himself. Yeah, he's spreading his seed everywhere. Let's run right? it, bro. Jeez. Let's run yeah. it. But I think it's beautiful because it's causing the overall way of functioning within society to rise. When women raise their standards and they're educated, which I think is beautiful, I think it's amazing that women are becoming more well-rounded and educated. It's just equally as important for men to be able to have to stay one step above. And they're not. And they're not. And we're not. And so men are becoming softer. Women are still advancing in a beautiful way. I think it's amazing that women are evolving in the way that they are. But men just don't know how to adapt in the way they should. So in a sense, the standards raising, being raised, the bars being raised higher for men, but men aren't able to be able to bridge the gap between 
the bar that's set for them and how to be able to do it, that spacing between where they are and how to get themselves to that. So instead of complaining about women, which is what a lot of men are doing in regard to them not being able to, to get laid. And now someone might listen to me and hear what I was saying and think that I was complaining about women earlier. I wasn't. I was more so just speaking to women that maybe have taken the intelligence and wisdom that they've gained through their experience and they're identifying with it instead of just allowing it to be a beautiful trait that they have and still acknowledge that they can, they can surrender to, to the guidance of a very powerful man. Because some women have completely lost themselves in it, which I don't think is healthy for them. So that's why I, I give that contingency. But now it's about being able to help men be able to know how to raise their own bar so they can be inevitably one step ahead of the woman that they're going to be with, which is what one woman really wants, which is a man that's one step or a few steps ahead of her so she can look to him in admiration and, and respect. Every single one of us, men and women included, want to have leaders. Every single one. The reality of the interplay of masculine and feminine dynamics is the first time sex happens, who's the one that cultivates the safe space? First time sex happens, who's the one that initiates it? The first time sex happens, who's the one that communicates about it? Well, evolutionary biology, which a lot of people absolutely hate, suggests that every single place in nature, every single mammal in nature, it's the man. And it should probably be the same for us as well. Now, I want to shift gears a little bit to the last item a quote that you have that got my mind spinning. I, I just, I, I want to share this with the people and I want you to elaborate on it. You're pursuing self-development, but what you really desire is non-self-destruction. Mm. Oh boy. What you're, you're pursuing self-development, but what you really desire is non-self-destruction. Everyone. Once themselves, that's why people listen to this podcast, education, self-development habits, you, you know, the whole line. But are we really operating in a place of abundance and trying to grow something that we don't currently have that maybe we can conceptualize, but hasn't been done yet? Or are we just trying not to die? The nature of the grow or die podcast. Are we actually trying to grow? Or are we trying to just do enough to not die? I want you to dive into this quote and leave the people with some fire here. Yeah. So because there's a lot of money in self-development and growth and personal development, I believe it's gotten to be very popular, especially because there's a lot of promises telling people that they can have or do what they want. So naturally people are going to gravitate toward that. But throughout history, there have been people that have not had a book to learn from that somehow were able to tap into something within themselves, a guidance system that allowed them to be remarkably successful and remembered for the rest of time. There's a few people that have done that, or at least remembered very strongly within the community that they were in. They didn't have the things that we have and the resources that we have today. Well, it's like, well, how did they do that? What, what did they do to be able to do that? And I believe those people had a very unique capacity to be connected to that power source within themselves, what we could say God, people don't absolutely know. I can't speak with certainty. I just say God because it implies something greater than me, which I like to believe there's something bigger than me. Mm -hmm. We'll just say that power source that they were able to tap into that guidance system that 
they weren't wavered in the process of pursuing. So they were able to operate in that emotionally autonomous state. So, and what I'm saying, and what I, what am I saying is, what I'm saying is, is if we're connected to that power source of knowing that exists within us, is all of this other stuff really necessary? I don't know. So is it more about being able to release all of this visceral world that we're taught that we should want and should do and get connected to the inner world where inspiration exists that communication with God can happen and then get to the point where we can relentlessly pursue that desire of the heart separate from what else everybody else is uh, telling us to do. So I think because there were people that have done remarkable things without having to read all the books to get there, I think it's possible for everybody. And that's what I do ultimately with my coaching. There's some practical things that I talk about in regard to male-female behavior that I think is very important to understand. But ultimately what I do is I give people the permission to commit fully to those desires. Well, first I connect them to the desires because most, most people are completely disconnected from it. And then give them the permission to be able to relentlessly pursue those desires. And oftentimes it doesn't require them to have to read a bunch of books. Kian Laggy, excellent show. Phenomenal guest. Love your insights. Thank you for sharing with us. People who want to reach out and chat with you more, how can they do so? You can find me on Instagram, official Kian. And uh, that's pretty much it. We'll put that in the show notes. Kian, Girl Eye Podcast. Thanks you for coming on. I appreciate it, bro. Until next time, keep being great, okay? Dude, Justin, thank you so much, man. You facilitated an incredible experience today. And I know why you have as much success as you do in this space. So thank you so much for having me on. Thanks, Kian.